Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am going to finish up the book of Jude, the first chapter, the only chapter of Jude. I'm going, I'm going to cover verses 17 through 25. Our context is this. The whole book of Jude is really about false teachers and false prophets. Jude has given a lot of historical examples of what happened to false prophets. They are destroyed. And so he's trying to warn his readers against being seduced by these guys. So, so I'm going to call this section of the scripture, Jude, 17, Jude 1, 17 through 25, a call to persevere. That's what the English Standard Version calls the last section of Jude chapter 1, a call to persevere. Why? Because they're being afflicted by all these stinking heretics. And Jude is saying, hey, you don't have to be beat by them. You don't have to be seduced by them. You can beat them. You can persevere. You can stand. So we start now in Jude 1, verses 17, 18, and 19. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you, in the end time, there will be scoffers walking according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are unbelievers, not having the Spirit. Now, the but there in verse 17 means to contrast the previous verse in which Jude mentioned arrogant, discontented grumblers who were flattering people for their own advantage. That's how he described the false heretics. But on the other hand, you, Christians, dear friends, in other words, don't listen to those arrogant, discontented grumblings that are flattering you, but remember what your apostles said to you. Remember what was predicted by the apostles. Well, what was predicted? Well, the doctrines of the apostles in general, I don't think so. John Gill denies that, but John Gill affirms this, the prophecies of the apostles concerning false teachers that should arise. And there are plenty of them. For example, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. That later times is the end of the Jewish the Jewish system, the the apostate rabbinic geopolitical Israel that was destroyed by Jerusalem in AD 70. That's what that's talking about, most probably. And Jude later is going to call it the end times. It doesn't mean the end of the world. It means the end of the Jewish system. 2 Timothy 3.1.5, but know this, difficult times will come in the last days. Again, last days, not talking about the end of the world, talking about the end of the Jewish rabbinic apostate geopolitical Israel, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers without self-control, brutal without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. Now, although that description could describe evil people in any generation, including current day America, I won't mention names, but Tim, Paul is really referring to the last days of the Jewish order, which was about to go down in AD 70. Acts 20, 29, Paul tells the Ephesian elders who met him at Miletus as he was on his way back to Jerusalem at the end of his third journey. Paul says this, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So you see the early church had a problem with heretics all over the place. 2 Peter 3, verses 2 and 3. So that you can remember the words previously, previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. First be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days to scoff, living according to their own desires. Now, of course, that's exactly the same words that Jude is used here in verses 17 and 18. Jameson Fawcett Brown says, Jude quotes the very words of Peter as the words which the apostles used to speak to, his, to Jude's readers. Well, I don't know who quoted whom, 
Did Peter quote Jude or Jude quote Peter? But the point is, is they're saying the same thing that in the end times, in the end of the Jewish persecuting order, there are going to be a lot of false messiahs. I didn't even mention Matthew 24. Jesus said the same thing. False prophets will arise in my name. Don't go running out into the wilderness to see these false messiahs. So the apostles did predict there are going to be some bad dudes coming around trying to screw up the church. Verse 18, they told you in the end times there will be scoffers walking according to their own ungodly desires. Who's the they that told them that? Well, it's the apostles. The apostles told you. Now, I just read you several scriptures in which the apostles did tell the Christians that in the last days, scoffers and false teachers would come. And so this should be straightforward. However, there's an interesting problem that arises here in verse 18. They told you. That sounds like it's the apostles, they, as opposed to Jude, who is not an apostle. And this goes to the question of who authored the book of Job. There are two options. One is Jude the apostle, also known as Thaddeus. And the other option is Jude the half-brother of Jesus. Well, if you want to take the position that Jude is the apostle of Jesus, not the half-brother of Jesus, but the apostle of Jesus, you could say, well, here Jude says, they, the apostles, as opposed to me, a non-apostle told you. So let's look at the argument that Jude was not an apostle. Again, as I said, the they there, they told you, which makes it sound like Jude is separating himself out from the body of the apostles and labeling himself as a non-apostles. Well, John Gill answers that and says, no, that's not what the they means. It, it, that does not suppose that Jude was not an apostle, only that there were other apostles beside him. In other words, the apostles told you, and they told you, well, Jude was not in the list, those list of apostles who predicted false teachers will to come. He's not in that group of apostles, but he's still an apostle. And so I think Gil is exactly right. I believe that Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, on the other hand, there's an argument that Jude was indeed an apostle of Jesus. If he were not an apostle of Jesus, he would have said, they told us non-apostles. In verse 18, they told us, but he doesn't say us. So if he'd have put the us in there, he would have been clearly labeling himself as a member of the non-apostolic group, if you will, thus proving that he was not an apostle, and therefore by default had to be Thaddeus, the disciple of Jesus. Well, that's very clever, but it's not depositive, because Jude is addressing his audience, the you in verse 18, they told you, the apostles told you. There's no need for him to say the apostles told us. Jude is worrying about the you, not the us. He's not worried about whether he was told about the false teachers. Now he's worried about whether the, his readers were told about the false apostles. So the fa fact that Jude didn't put the us in there is an argument from silence anyway. They told us, i.e. they told us non-apostles. They, the apostles, told us non-apostles. No, Jude was an apostle, I think. And if he was not an apostle, this argument is not enough to prove it one way or the other. I spent a lot of time on something that a lot of the scholars spent a good bit of time talking about in verse 18. I don't really care that much. So they told you, these apostles, that are warning of the scoffers in the end time. They told you, quote, in the end time there will be scoffers walking according to their own ungodly desires. Now that phrase, end times, could it be the end of the world? That's where everybody wants to take it. But no, it's the end of the rabbinic. Jewish dispensation, which was destroyed in AD 70. Now, how do I show that? Well, for one reason, the end times are often mentioned as 
referring to the time of the early apostles at the end of the apostolic Jewish age, at, at the apostate Jewish age. For example, in Hebrews 1-2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He has spoken to us in the past. And how did he spoke when his son was sent? That was during the incarnation and the ministry of Jesus. That was the last days. Jesus was operating in the last days. And not only that, Jude is complaining about false teachers in his own time. And he quotes the apostles to that effect. In his own time. In the end time, there will be scoffers. Now, why would he be talking about scoffers at the end of the world when he's dealing with scoffers right then in the time of Jude as he writes? So, in the end time, there will be scoffers walking according to their own ungodly desires. Now, you notice that these scoffers not only have false teachings, they have false lust at the end of the age. By the way, Adam Clark says that the last time is, quote, the conclusion of the Jewish polity, unquote. So it's not just me that's coming up with this idea. There's other people that believe it, too. Foolish desires they have. This is a parallel from Second Peter 3, 3. First, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days to scoff, living according to their own desires. So we see that the doctrinal is often intertwined with the moral. False teachers oftentimes have bad morals. In verse 19, Jude continues, These people create divisions and are unbelievers, not having the spirit. Now, there are ungodly divisions that happen. And there are divisions that are godly. Jude here, of course, is talking about ungodly divisions. Let me give you an example, on the other hand, of godly divisions. For example, when church discipline is exercised, Matthew 16, Matthew 18, and unbelievers are kicked out, or, excuse me, sinning, uh, unrepentant sinners are kicked out of the church, excommunicated. Well, that's a division. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus also said that his gospel would divide. When he said he came to pit family member against family member, Luke 12:53, they will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That's Jesus predicting division. He didn't say there was anything wrong with that. But the ungodly division that Jude is talking about is some kind of factions in the church, which, of course, is the usual practice of heretics, as the NIV study Bible correctly notes. The division could have been not just factions in general, but it, the false teachers could have been dividing the spiritual people from the sensual people. The spiritual people being the Gnostics, who don't care about the fleshly body, and the sensual people, the non-Gnostics, who do care about their physical bodies. Well, that's a false dichotomy. Now, these people are said to be unbelievers in verse 19. Unbelievers without the Spirit. Unbelievers not having the Spirit. Now, unbelievers is sort of a plain vanilla translation. Some other translations have a little bit more punch. For example, the King James and the La Biblia de las Americas, which is a Spanish translation. And the American Standard Version have sensual. These false prophets are, these false teachers are sensual. Adam Clark says the word is sukikoi. Animal, living as brute beast, guided simply by their own lusts and passions. Well, that's a lot stronger than just unbelievers. The Holman Christian Study Bible has a note that says that Sukiko should be, these men are not merely unbelievers, but they are natural, natural men. The NASB has worldly-minded men. The JFB, Jameson Fawcett and Brown, says they are animal-souled. Well, apparently that word is hard to translate. So, they're sensual unbelievers. Like animals, if we, if we want to stretch it a little bit. 
not having the Spirit that shows that they were not believers. This is a verse that clearly shows that Christians have the Holy Spirit. Paul said the same thing in Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So you, that's, how you t- that's how you distinguish a Christian from a non-Christian. If he has the Spirit of Christ living in him, he's a Christian. If he doesn't, he's not. Simple as that, of course. Since the Holy Spirit is invisible, sometimes we have trouble distinguishing between those who are believers and those who are not. But, in fact, John Gill here says that not having the Spirit means not operating in the realm of the Spirit, and therefore it refers to fleshly believers, not unbelievers. I find that hard to believe, given Jude's vituperous denunciation of them all the way through the book, all the way through the chapter. All right, so these false teachers don't have the Spirit. We go now to Jude 1, verses 20 and 21. But you, again, the but is in in opposition to, in contradistinction to the false teachers. But you, dear friends, as you build yourself up, Dear friends, I noticed that John uses that phrase, dear friends, a lot. Jude uses it, too, a couple times here. This is one time, as opposed to beloved brothers that Paul likes to use. But you, dear friends, as you build yourself up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, expecting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. So Jude tells the people, instead of listening to these false teachers, they need to pray in the Holy Spirit to build themselves up. Now, what does praying in the Holy Spirit mean? Well, first of all, it's in, con- in contrast to those who don't have the Holy Spirit. There's your, that but there's a c- contrasting the false teachers who don't have the Spirit, but you guys, you do have the Spirit, so therefore pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, there's two options, and I'm 50-50 on which way this goes. Praying in the Holy Spirit could just mean praying under the control of the Holy Spirit, according to the Spirit's promptings and with the power of the Spirit, praying in union with the Holy Spirit, in other words, just praying in general, in accordance with the Holy Spirit. That's option number one. Option number two, it could be more more specifically referring to praying in tongues. Now, the reason I say that is because Paul uses a very similar expression to refer to praying in tongues. Praying in the Holy Spirit here in Jude, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, what then I will pray with the Spirit. Those prepositions are funky. Pray in the Spirit. I think some translations have. I'm not going to quibble over the translation, over the preposition. What then I will pray with the Spirit. I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with my understanding. There he's obviously talking about praying in tongues, praying in the Spirit. So you got exactly the same expression there. And then also, Jude says, build yourself up in your most holy faith. Well, that's exactly what Paul says praying in tongues does. 1 Corinthians 14, 4. The person who speaks in another tongue builds himself up. Well, that's a strong case to say that Paul meant here praying in tongues. Now, of course, everybody doesn't pray in tongues because of erroneous theology, which has been swallowed hook, line, and sinker by many wide swaths of the evangelical church who somehow think that either tongues don't exist at all and they're just psychological or they do exist but not for me, not for them. And I submit to you that that is uh, unfortunate because tongues are for anybody who wants them is humble enough to say, yeah, I would like that, Lord. Please please let me do that. But unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians that are hung up on, on that because they've got this erroneous concept in their mind is what the in fact i just saw a video by a reformed group called the american gospel which in general was an excellent video but they had benny hen's nephew on there who's rightfully reacted against benny hen's hyper faith money grubbing false gospel but then he starts for, for gratuitously gratuitously throws in the video he says oh i see that 
speaking in tongues is not for everybody because Paul says, do you not all speak in tongues? And of course, what Costihan there does is completely throws out every common, proper hermeneutical practice. You have to interpret by the context. The context is in the church. Paul is saying, I don't want everybody to speak in tongues in the church. He wasn't talking about not speaking in tongues privately. And so this is a sort of nonsense that's floating around out there as people take pot shots at the Benny Hens and Kenneth Copelands of the world. It's really a shame. So I suspect that this is praying in the Holy Spirit means praying in tongues. But even if it's not, there are a lot of people who do. You can pray in the realm of of the Holy Spirit, or under the control of the Holy Spirit, or in union with the Holy Spirit, even if you're not speaking in tongues. You, know, you can do that if you do speak in tongues when you're speaking in English or speaking in your native language. You can pray in the sphere of the Holy Spirit. So I wouldn't get too bent out of shape about, about which way that goes. Now, here's some other scriptures that talk about praying in, through the with the help of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 26 and 27, in the same way the Spirit also joins to help in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. That sounds like tongues to me, but maybe not. And he who searches the hearts knows the Spirit's mindset, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the he, I guess, is either Jesus or God searches the hearts, knows the Spirit's mindset, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then he's God himself. Jesus himself is interceding for us through the Holy Spirit with unspoken groanings, whatever that means. Sounds like tongues to me, but, you know, I can't prove it. So I just put it out there and let you decide. Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now notice that God has sent the Spirit of his Son. So that means the Holy Spirit is the, is the Spirit, not only the Spirit of God, but it's the Spirit of Jesus. And he is in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is said to be in us. And several times I just read a verse from uh, Romans that the Holy Spirit is in us. Lost the sight right offhand, but I know it's there. Ephesians 6.18, pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer. In the Spirit, pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. That means in the will of the Spirit or in the control of the Spirit, in the realm of the Spirit, in union with the Spirit, or it means speaking in tongues. With every prayer and request, and stay alert in this with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. So, the Holy Spirit helps us in prayer, and it will keep you away from false teaching, by the way. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, expecting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Jude there is contrasting the heresies and the polluted flesh and the arrogance and the flattering words of the false teachers he's contrasting that with the love of god god loves us that's why he wants to keep us away from these this nonsensical teaching and that shows why teaching is important teaching is love folks when you point people to jesus and get them walking in the way the truth and the life you're loving people much more than any other way you could love them keep yourselves in the love of god of course and we're not able to keep ourselves the niv study bible says you're able to keep yourself only because god keeps you how does god keep you Romans 8, 35 and 39, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, Height or depth or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know you're familiar with that passage, but I love to read it. Nothing's going to separate us from the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God because nothing's going to separate you from the love of God. 
expecting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. How many times is eternal life mentioned in the Scripture? John mentioned, Jesus mentions it in John 8, and Paul, John, John uh, in his letters mentions eternal life, and eternal means forever. And, I, and whenever I see that phrase, eternal life, I think of an Armenian and say, well, now, Armenian, when you got saved, you got eternal life, right? Well, how long is eternal? You can lose your salvation. Well, if you did, then that which you received was not eternal. It was only temporary. But Jesus didn't say he came to give us temporary life. He came to give us eternal life. So how can you say that a born-again child of God can lose his salvation? We go now to verses 22 and 23 of Jude chapter 1. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now, we need to know the context of this verse, which is a little bit difficult. The context, of course, is these false heretical teachers that are seducing the Christians. And Jude basically makes three categories of people here, possibly four, depending on a translation difference. The first category, of course, is the false teachers themselves, who are anathema, who need to be booted out of the church and so forth. And the second group is in verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Now, these are people who are not been totally seduced, but their doubts are being raised in their mind. Well, you don't come down hard on people like that. You help try to alleviate their doubts with calm, compassionate, merciful teaching to them. So Jude makes a big distinction between people who deliberately sin against the truth, that would be the false teachers, and those who are not sure about the truth. As an inveterate doubter, before I was 18 years old, between the age of 6 and 18 for 12 years, I doubted a lot, and it's a terrible situation to be in. I have a lot of compassion for people like that. We're supposed to have mercy on people like that. If somebody starts doubting, you don't start saying, oh, you're, you're betraying Jesus. You Benedict Arnold shouldn't do that. John Gill says, quote, such who have gone astray, being drawn aside, who are simple and ignorant and out of the way, who sin through infirmity and the force of temptation, and who are tractable and open to conviction. Okay, so that's, that's group number two. Now, here's group number three, which might be three and four, but let's just say three for right now. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Now, these are people who are not just merely doubting, but these are people who are about to go over to the dark side. They're just about to be seduced and believe the heresy. Now, I have a friend who had a church that had heretics in the church, and there were people who doubted, but there were some who basically were walking around like zombies. Now, they have come back from the dark side. They were snatched because my friend, the leader in that church, went around and jerked them out of the fire and said, you are destroying your faith. You are in terrible shape. And they came back. And I know some of these guys, and they're strong Christians. So sometimes you've got to be a little rough with people if they're about to, to go over to the dark side. You've got to snatch them. It's a merciful thing to be rough with people who are about to jump into a fire. You say, don't do that. You might even say, don't do that, you moron. You're going to burn up. You have to, you have to be a little bit rough. That's different than those who are just doubting. These are people who are about ready to run off into the heresy. Snatch them from the fire. Notice the fire it burns you up, and that's what happens when you listen to false teaching. It will fry you. All right, I'm assuming that those are the three groups here. I'm going to talk a little bit later about perhaps as a fourth group. So Adam Clark says, and, and my old commentators are using the King James. The King James is clear. It looks like there's three groups only. The modern translations make it look like there are four groups. So there's where the problem is. But my commentators using the King James, they say there's three groups. So here's what Adam Clark says, quote, 
You are not to deal alike with all those who have been seduced by false teachers. You are to make a difference between those who have been led away by weakness and imprudence and those who, in the pride and arrogance of their hearts and their unwillingness to submit to wholesome discipline, have separated themselves from the church and become its inveterate enemies. So there's your distinction. Jameson Fawcett and Brown makes the same distinction. Quote, three kinds of patients require three kinds of medical treatment. The three classes are, one, those who contend with you whom you should convict. That, of course, is the false teachers. Number two, Jameson Fawcett and Brown continue, those who are as brands already in the fire of which hell fires the consummation. These you should try to save by snatching them out. That's what I previously called the third group. And then he's got the groups out of order. And then three, this is the second group, but he lists them third. Jameson Fawcett Brown lists them third. Those who are objects of compassion, whom accordingly you should compassionate and help if occasion should offer. But at the same time, not let pity degenerate into connivance at their error. Your compassion is to be accompanied with fear of being at all defiled by them. Okay, so that's your standard interpretation through different groups, and that makes a lot of sense. You got to use wisdom in dealing with people. People are very difficult. They're very complicated. The goal is to get them into the loving arms of Jesus, however you have to do it. And some people you do one way, some people you do another. Now, let's look at a possible fourth class of people. I'm going to look at the Holman Christian Study Bible Translation, verse 23, Jude 1. Save others by snatching from the fire. There's others, number one. Have mercy on others, Mercy number two, but with fear. Now, to me, it's just simple to say those others are the same group. You have mercy on those you're snatching them out of the fire, but have fear, fear that they're going to end up destroyed in the fire. That's the easiest way to deal with that, in my opinion. But if it's another group, if it's a fourth group, it sounds like it's a sort of a combination of the, the doubting group, which you're supposed to have mercy on, verse 22, have mercy on them, but also have fear, fear that they're going to be burnt up. So it'd be somebody sort of in between. Well, I think that's real subtle, and I don't believe it. I believe there's just basically three groups. Now, have mercy on that third group, the ones that are brands to be plucked from the fire. Have mercy on those with fear. Now, the interesting question here is, whose fear is it? Is it fear in the snatcher, the one who is trying to rescue the falling Christian? Or is it fear in the snatchee, the one who's being plucked out of the fire? The NIV Study Bible says it's fear in the one doing the snatching. Even in showing mercy, one may be trapped by the allurement of sin. Well, that's possible, but I really don't think that's what it is. I believe that Barnes is right. It's fear in the snatchy, the one who's being plucked from the fire. In other words, we're to make appeals to such a person who is about to be seduced to the dark side. We should make appeals to him and adapt it in such a way as to produce fear in the person who's about to leave the faith. In other words, why do you want to burn up in hell? Well, if they're already believers, of course you wouldn't say that. But why do you want to destroy your life? Why do you want to do that? All right, so I'm, I'm going to take the position that we're supposed to have mercy on those who are brands that are in the fire of heresy. They're burning. We're supposed to snatch them out, and we're supposed to use fear to do it. So we use mercy on those who are doubting and those who've already jumped into the fire. We use fear, so you're going to burn up. Maybe you'd like to get out. And we're supposed to hate even the garment defiled by the flesh. Well, if the flesh is dirty. Think about this analogy. you got flesh. It's dirty, so you wear a garment to keep the dirt off your arms, so your shirt gets dirty. But hey, if you keep your shirt clean, that means your skin's not going to get dirty at all. You're one step removed from getting dirty. Now, the reference could be to the Old Testament, 
Well, before I get into the Old Testament illusion, let me say it again. Let me repeat what I'm saying. The garment protects one from touching the flesh, but we're to go one step further. We're not even to touch the thing that protects from the flesh. We don't even make the garment dirty. In other words, we're supposed to stay a long, long way from these heretics. Jameson Fawcett Brown says that hating the garment that's touched by the flesh, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh, we that is a proverbial phrase that means avoiding the most remote contact with sin and hating that which borders on it. We're supposed to stay a long, long way away from the sin of these heretics. Now, we're supposed to hate the garment which is defiled by the flesh. Flesh, of course, is a synonym for sin. So we're not only supposed to hate the sin, we're supposed to hate the thing which is supposed to protect us from the sin, the garment. Now, that reference to gar- defiled garments could come from the Old Testament. John Gill points out that garments that were polluted by menstrual discharge of a woman were considered defiled according to the Levitical law. Also, garments polluted by bloody discharge of a sick person were considered defiled. Nocturnal pollutions, Gill says, were defiled. And I think what he means by that is a semen-stained garment belonging to someone who had illicit sex. Well, I'm not sure that's what he means by that. But in any rate, leprosy, of course, that would defile the garment. So it's a pretty strong analogy for a Jewish person who might have some understanding of what it means, a garment defiled by the flesh. We're supposed to hate that. Stay away from those nasty garments. So, likewise, we're supposed to stay away from these nasty heretics. We go now to verse 24 and 25. We'll finish up Jude. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Now, now Jude ends up on a positive note. He's warned, warned, warned against the heretics. And boy, does he turn it around in the last couple of verse and says, hey, don't worry. God can protect you from stumbling with these heretics. He can make you stand. You're not going to fall because of these heretics. You're going to be in the presence of his glory, not in the presence of those heretics. You're going to be blameless, not blameworthy because of you believing their heretical doctrines. You're going to have great joy instead of the misery that these heretics produce. Now, you're going to be made to stand in verse 24 when, in Jude's time or at the end of history of both, I think it's both, to the only God our Savior. Well, God could refer to the whole Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It could be the Father, Clark affirms that, or it could be Jesus. Those references to God a lot of times are ambiguous, likewise Savior. But I think here it's referring to God the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord, If so, there are other verses that show that God is our Savior as well as Jesus is our Savior. Through God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all men now and forever in eternity. And with that happy note, we finish Jude. I hope you stay tuned in our next audio for a beginning of the discussion of St. John's Apocalypse. The revelation of St. John, or the revelation of Jesus to St. John, one of the most difficult books of the Bible, but I'm going to Teach it from an orthodox preterist viewpoint, which makes an awful lot of sense and makes it understandable and a blessing. It's one of my favorite books because of its controversial nature and because once you really understand what was being said in the book of Revelation, it actually does become a blessing to you. So I hope you stay tuned for our next audio as we start in Revelation, and I hope you enjoyed this one.